0: Chapter 12 of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains by Stella M. Francis Chapter 12 A Mysterious Disappearance The Flamingo Campfire arrived at the Stanlock home on Friday Christmas was scheduled on the calendar to fall on the following Wednesday. From the day of their arrival, all of the girls were busy with Christmas preparations. Every one of them, several weeks before, had taken on her the task of making, buying, or assembling from parts purchased a score, or more of presents, as one of the chief aims of Hiawatha Institute was to teach wealthy men's daughters how to be economical. It goes without saying that each of these girls had on hand no enviable winter task. Madam Cleaver laid the matter very plainly before her two hundred and forty-odd girls. She had observed that the Christmas problem had a tendency to make some of the students of her school sympathise with old Scrooge. If Christmas wasn't a humbug, it could very easily be made a nuisance. Madame Cleaver agreed with them in this respect. She told them so. Furthermore, she added, I don't wish you to understand that there is anything compulsory in the giving of presents on such occasions. One of the dangers of this sort of thing is that it is likely to become a perfunctory affair with thousands taking part because they feel they have to. Also, Christmas is exploited by many people. Their sympathy for the good fellowship of the occasion is measured largely by the dollars and cents that it pours into their coffers. You should see all these drawbacks and then decide for yourselves whether the advantages of Christmas overbalance the drawbacks. For my part, I believe that they do, and I enjoy the day and the season, but don't take my word for it. Decide for yourselves. The result was that everybody at the Institute got busy several weeks before the holiday season, and the manner in which the products of girl ingenuity began to pile up must have been satisfying indeed to the head of the school. But the work was not all done when the campfire arrived at Holly Hill. Most of the girls still having enough to do to keep them busy almost up to christmas eve mr stanlock advised the girls not to leave the house under any consideration after night and engaged three detectives who were given instructions to follow and protect any of marion's guests who might desire to go shopping or make other journeys about the city in the daytime Automobiles with drivers were within ready call for these men at any time. It was understood also that no journeys were to be made into the section of the city inhabited by the miners and their families. Thus far the strike had not been attended by violence of any sort or destruction of property. The men had simply ceased to work, and had submitted their demands to the president of the company. The latter realized at once that the employees were being led by an unusual type of labor agitators, which might be expected to employ unusual methods to gain their ends. The man who appeared to be the leader was as unusual in appearance as he was in methods pursued. He was about thirty-five years old, but looked five or eight years younger. He had first been employed in the mines about six months before as an operator of an electric chain-cutter machine, but he had not long been connected with the work before his influence among the men began to be felt. To the casual observer, he was a quiet, sharp-eyed man, who seldom spoke, under ordinary circumstances, unless he was first spoken to. But he got in communication with all his fellow workers in some mysterious manner, and before long, in spite of the fact that he was not what is popularly known as a mixer, everybody from shovelers to machine men knew him as Dave, the chain-cutter man. He had the reputation of being able to do, half again, as much work as any man in the slope although mr stanlock knew of the influence of this man on the miners almost from the day when the strike was called the only name by which he heard him spoken of during almost the entire period of the tire was dave the chain cutter man little of special interest relative to the strike so far as the girls were concerned took place on the last Saturday and Sunday before Christmas. Mr. Stanlock reported the recent occurrences to the police in detail, but what the police planned to do was not communicated in the form of hint or suggestion to the members of Flamingo Fire. If Mr. Stanlock knew, he kept the information a close secret. In harmony with his habitual reticence on business matters, he sought to avoid further discussion of the subject. On Saturday, however, there was added to the events of the season one item of great importance, which would have caused Marion no little uneasiness could she have caught more than the most superficial hint concerning it. This hint was so superficial that it consisted merely of a glimpse at the address and postmark on a letter that arrived at the house with the early mail. Marion took the letters and papers from the mail box, and as she was distributing them, she observed the Holly Hill postmark on an envelope addressed in a man's handwriting to Helen Nash. "'I wonder who it can be.' The hostess mused as she laid the letter on Helen's dresser. I didn't know that she was on specially friendly terms with any of the boys of Holly Hill. But then you can never know what to expect of her. You find out what she is going to do when she does it. In spite of the paradox, no truer statement of Helen's nature had ever been made. She said nothing to any of the girls about the letter she had received, and if subsequent events had not recalled the incident, Marion probably would have forgotten it entirely. The three detectives employed by Mr. Stanlock were housed in the now vacant sleeping quarters of the chauffeur over the garage. A buzzer connected with the house, and an agreed signal system of one two three served as a means of quick information as to how many of the men were wanted at any given time sunday morning another chauffeur engaged by mr stanlock arrived and was housed with the detectives it was not the duty of the latter of course to accompany or follow anybody leaving the house unless they were called hence it was quite possible for any of the guests to start out alone and make a trip to any part of the city without the protection of a watchful guard the possibility that any of the guests might desire to take such a course did not occur to marion or any other member of the household it was presumed that everybody would gladly accept such protection on every occasion when it seemed advisable. As a matter of fact, however, the detectives had little to do on Saturday and Sunday. Only three of the girls made shopping trips on Saturday, and all took an automobile ride Sunday afternoon. This was the sum total of their activities away from the Stanlock home, with the exception of one instance, of which there was no hint until late in the afternoon. About six o'clock Marion suddenly became mindful of the fact that she had not seen Helen since their return from the automobile drive three hours earlier, and she began a search for her. She first went upstairs to her room to see if her friend were there. Probably she was tired and had laid down to rest and fallen asleep but an inspection of the room failed to discover Helen. Considerably puzzled, Marion now hunted up every other person in the house and inquired for the missing girl. Not one of them remembered seeing her since the return from the drive. The girl hostess was now thoroughly alarmed and her fears were speedily communicated to the others. Everybody joined in the search, and every nook and corner capable of concealing a human form was examined. Helen Nash was not in the house, and there seemed to be no reasonable explanation of her disappearance. End of Chapter 12